Okay, Genesis chapter 22, the last couple of weeks, we have been going through um, this uh, story of the what is called the binding or the offering of Isaac. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first few verses and, and last week we, we kind of dealt on those, dwelt on those things some and then went on into the, the rest of the chapter. And uh, today, Lord willing, I'd like to finish uh, looking at the chapter and we'll be kind of looking at some of the same passage that we looked at last week. Uh, so basically, the story covers from verse 1 through verse uh, 19. So let's just read that passage uh, and uh, we'll do some review and, and go on. So now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place at a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took his, in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. In the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of your enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed 
because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Okay? Uh, this passage really uh, can be looked at uh, and needs to be looked at kind of from three different perspectives. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at it from one perspective. And today I want to focus on the other two ways that the passage needs to be considered. But it, it can be looked at and needs to be looked at uh, basically just from the sense of the immediate story, the historical, the historical event that occurred. What occurred? What did God do? What did Abraham do? And what are the lessons that we can learn just from the actual historical event, this real-time event that really occurred in the life of a man named Abraham many, many, many years ago? Okay? So that's basically how we've been looking at it for the last couple of weeks. We've just been considering the story, understanding exactly what happened. So it's basically setting the story in its context. Okay? And that's one way we look at it and one way we need to look at it. And so we sought to see what God said and what God did and what Abraham did and what Abraham said. And from that, to glean lessons and understand things uh, just about the life of faith and the walk of faith and obedience to God and those sorts of things that we've been looking at. The second aspect of this story, or the second way that the story needs to be looked at, as we'll see today, is the story needs to be looked at in terms of the long-term consequences of what Abraham did. So this is not just a story about what Abraham did, but what Abraham did and what happens here at Moriah has profound long-term consequences or a long-term significance. And we have to understand that significance. That's why the story is here, so that we would see and understand these long-term consequences of what God has done and what Abraham has done here. And then the third way that the story needs to be looked at, and this becomes clear as we get more clear as we get into the New Testament, is what happened here not only is a story about Abraham and Abraham's walk with God, and it's not only a story about the impact of what Abraham did on future, on subsequent events, but the story also is a type. It's an illustration. It's a picture of something, okay? And it needs to be understand, understood also from that context. So, so what I want to do today, if I want to go back for a few minutes and, and just kind of review again, refresh in our minds some of the things we've learned just from the historical story itself. What happened and what are some of the things that we learned uh, over the last couple of weeks from this story? So let's just do that first. And then we want to go on and look at a couple of these other uh, things about the story that are important for us to understand. So just kind of going back and reviewing what are the things we've talked about in the last couple of weeks and what are the things that stick out in your mind that are important or particularly meaningful to you? Verse 5 and 8. He knew in his heart God was going to provide. Okay. But he didn't know how. Okay. So it hadn't been fairly much, but um, I'm not sure that's not the same as it is today. You know, we know, we trust God. We know the truth. That's something else going to work out. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we talked about the walk of faith really has kind of two tracks to it, doesn't it? It has, the, it has the aspect of the struggle, and we see that very clearly unfolding in this story, this struggle in Abraham's uh, obedience and, and, and what he goes through as he struggles with his idea of offering his son. So it has the element of struggle, but it also has the element of faith, doesn't it? And those two things run in tandem for us. 
when we are walking by faith, when we are living a life of faith, we have both of those experiences. And, and that's the point that Hal's bringing out. Okay. If that's true, last week we talked about kind of the two pitfalls, the two extremes that people go to in the life of faith. What are those two extremes? you remember? Pardon? Puddle glum and Pollyanna. There you go. Okay. Puddle glum and Pollyanna. Okay. Fatalism. Okay. This kind of, you know, well, just whatever God wants to do to me. I saw a classic illustration. It wasn't in a Christian context, but uh, last night we watched the movie uh, Hidalgo uh, on, on television. And there's a couple scenes there in Hidalgo where uh, these Muslim guys are, you know, they're facing death and all those sort of things. And there's one particular scene where the guy is dying and, and, uh, uh, what's his name, Frank uh, Hopkins. Yeah, Frank Hopkins comes along, and and of course I don't know if this is actually historically true or not. The story's based on this guy's life, but I, there's a lot of you know Hollywood in this movie too. But but so he throws a rope to this guy to rescue him. The guy's dying, and the guy says, "Don't." He says, "This is all his will. This is God's will. Just let me die." And he he's objecting to being saved because it's that's fatalism, okay? And uh, of course, it's easy to see in that context uh, that there's something wrong with that. But oftentimes, Christians are the same way that that they have this kind of fatalistic. Well, just whatever happens, you know, whatever God wants to do, you know, He's God, and He can just do to me whatever. And there's this kind of fatalistic, uh, uh, deterministic uh, sense of faith. Okay, Abraham. Abraham doesn't have that. Even though he does struggle, it's not a fatalistic faith. He somehow believes, he understands that God has given him a promise. That, this, that through Isaac, his seed, his descendants would come. So he has this assurance. And that becomes very clear both in this passage and then in the New Testament passages about this story. Uh, it becomes very clear that Abraham was assured and confident that somehow God was going to work all this out. Okay? So it wasn't a fatalistic faith. But on the other hand, it wasn't it wasn't a Pollyanna faith either, was it? It wasn't it wasn't a faith that says, okay, everything's okay. You know, I don't have any problems in life. I don't have any struggles. You know, my my kids die and I lose my job and and the house burns down and all. But you know, I'm happy because you know uh, all things work together for good. Okay, that's Pollyanna faith. Okay, the real life of faith is a life where we have both struggle and faith together. And that's what we see here in the story of Abraham. What else? Okay, see you guys. That's all right. What else do you recall? I wasn't here, so I don't recall that. I've always wondered on that. I've had people tell me, you know, what Abraham knew. He wasn't going to offer his son and all that for the two statements that we will return and mm-hmm. God will provide the lamb. And I don't I, I remember, I've always read it as, as kind of Abraham's bluff. I mean, he doesn't mm-hmm. want to tell you I'm going to send yeah. my son. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if he really knew that or not. Uh, I, yeah. He's hoping and struggling and maybe he's thinking it might go that way, but I don't know if he knew that or not. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think he did know how it was going to turn out. I, I think somehow, I think he's groping at this point. You know, it's, Somehow this is going to, you know, I've been in those situations. You probably have been too. You're in a predicament and you believe God's going to answer or God's going to take care of it. So what do you do? You start figuring out, you know, well, maybe he'll do it this way or maybe he'll do it that way. And as we said, usually he does it something entirely different. And, and I think that that's some degree what he's doing. Well, 
Yeah, yeah. And and I think the indication of that, that that is ex- exactly what's going on, is in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that when, that when God finally does intervene, it says He received Him back as if from the dead as a type. So it says... As we talk, and we did talk about this last week, as you said you weren't here. We talked about the fact that Abraham, from the moment that God told him to offer him his son, in Abraham's mind, his son was dead. And so when then God says, don't lay your hand on your son, don't stretch out your hand against your son, it's like he received him back from the dead. And Hebrews makes that pretty clear. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't say, it's interesting that in that passage in Hebrews, it doesn't say he believed he would raise him from the dead. It just said he understood that God could raise people from the dead. And, and it's, pretty great, it's really pretty significant faith because what he's thinking about in terms of his son there is he's thinking about his son who in a matter of a matter of 15 or 20 minutes is going to be nothing but ashes. And he believes that God is able to raise his son from a pile of ashes and give him his son back. But he doesn't know that that's how God's going to do it. And Hebrews doesn't say that he believed that that's how God was going to do it. He just believed God could do that if God chose to do that. Okay? Yeah, Rick. What do you think was his background to come to that? About resurrection? Um, The only explanation I have for it is is he understands that the God he worships is the God of creation. That he formed the world out of nothing. Because he certainly has no, at least as far as we know, there's been no resurrection example that he could go by. Kevin, you have? Yeah, I was going to say that it would seem also because, of, because he believed in the promise of God that, that I think was the promise here. Yes. And he believed that that was sure. But then you have this other, this you know, offer your son as a burnt offering. The two don't work together. If this is true, then there's got to be a link to, to, that he keeps going on. Yeah. So I'm I'm looking at the circumstances maybe forcing him to. Well, I guess God's going to get me raised from the dead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how he, how he formulates that in his mind, I don't exactly know. But yeah, clearly he's. I think I think the best way I know to put it here is he's groping, and it's not a groping of desperation. It's a groping of faith. It's, it's I believe God and I trust God and I believe his character and I've walked with him and he is my friend and he loves me and he has spoken this word and his word is true. And I believe all those things. So somehow in my mind, it's in, it's inevitable in our mind. We try and put the pieces of the puzzle together because the whole thing seems so illogical. And 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 that reality is going to take us uh, into some of these things that we want to look at today as we go on. Well, he did have the miraculous birth by Sure. I think for the, the two illustrations in the New Testament that I've thought about a lot, where there were two times Jesus committed great faith. One was the little uh, Syrophoenician lady mm-hmm. that talked about the dogs, and she said, you know, what is eat the crumbs? And the other was a centurion who said, you don't have to come. And both of those were reaching beyond what they should have already known. Sure, yeah, faith. good point, yeah. And this is one too. It's like it's uh, what God calls great faith is when you step out into the greatness of God beyond what you already know or have been clearly taught. Yeah, yeah. 
And, you know, I look at my life and I think, you know, I've been taught things 10 times, 15 times, 50 times, and I still have <laughs> even though it's clearly written down yeah. to me, much yeah. less stepping out somewhere where I haven't experienced it or it's not real clear. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point, yeah. Did you have something you want to say, Ron? Okay. You don't scratch your head, man. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Okay. Well, let's go on then. Let's recall for a moment now what what has transpired here at Moriah. They arrive there at Moriah, at the mountain on Moriah, uh, or on the mountain at Moriah. And, and uh, Abraham builds an altar and he arranges the wood and then he binds his son. And as we mentioned last week, that clearly implies... Uh, Isaac's willing submission to what's going on. So by this point, he knows what's happening. Uh, it's clear he, mu- he must know what his father's intentions are. And yet he submits to it. Uh, and, and I don't want to belabor that because the story doesn't belabor it. Okay, The story is about Abraham. It's not about Isaac. So I don't want to belabor that. But it is pretty clear that Isaac willingly submits to what his father is going to do and I think it's pretty clear it's because he because he has great confidence and trust in his father and he has great confidence and trust in his father's God. OK, so even though what is true, it is true. What we said last week is that these two figures walking up that mountain together really represent a, a quite a, a, a generation gap, if you will. There's a world of difference between Isaac and Abraham, these two figures walking up the mountain. And, and one of the ways is, is, is one of these guys walking up the mountain is 110, 115 years old or so, and, and he has a whole lifetime of faith experiences. And then you have Isaac, who's just beginning on his sojourn of faith. And, and so there's really a world of difference in the faith experiences of these two guys. Okay. But I think one of the things we can assume uh, from the story about Isaac is that even though his faith experience at this point is quite new and quite limited, he does have faith in the God of his father. And he is willing to submit, as he obviously does here, to what his father's doing because of the faith in his father's God. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, probably more so than even in that day. But yeah, that's true. So so he binds Isaac and he puts him on the altar. And then it's very dramatic the way the story is told. He reaches out his hand to take the knife to slay his son. And there at that very last moment, then God intervenes. It's called him an angel from heaven, but it's very clear that it is the Lord. Because you'll notice in the story, it says. uh, Uh. In verse 11, it says, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now, I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your your son, your only son from. Who? Me. Okay. so it's very clear here that the angel of the Lord here is a reference to the Lord himself. Okay. so the Lord is speaking from heaven to him and intervenes and stops his hand and does not allow him to slay his son. And at that moment, Abraham looks up and he sees this ram caught in the thicket. And 
whatever the explanation is for what Abraham said earlier to his son Isaac as they were going up the mountain when he said God will provide the lamb. And I think as we've talked about, I think at that point he's groping. He's just trying to go, I don't know how God's going to do this or whatever. Now we find out that he was actually, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking prophetically. He probably didn't even know it. But he's speaking prophetically of, of what's going to happen. And in fact, a ram is provided. So Abraham goes and he takes the ram and he brings the ram over. He releases his son. And he offers that ram on the altar. And it very graphically tells us, very poignantly tells us, in the place of his son. I, I can't imagine what is going on in the hearts and the minds of those two individuals at that moment. I can't imagine what's going on in Isaac's mind as he's standing there watching his father slay that ram and recognizing that God brought that ram and God put that ram there for the specific purpose that he wouldn't have to be slain. And just the thoughts going through Isaac's mind. And again, Isaac's really not the story here, but we can't help but stop and think about what is going through Isaac's mind. And what is going through Abraham's mind as he slays that ram. The, the sense of relief. The sense of God's provision. And what God has done so that his son would not have to be offered. And, and all these thoughts are going through Abraham's mind. And then as he, and as he stands there, and he watches that ram consumed by the fire and realizes that it could have been him watching his son consumed. But that God in His grace has provided something in the place of His Son. And so He watches this ram consumed and burned to ashes instead of the body of His only beloved Son. So it's, it's just, you know, it's obviously things that we could think about and, and meditate on in depth for a long time. But... <clears throat> But we'll move on at this point. So, Abraham has now obeyed the Lord. And, and then he names this place. He, he calls this place, the Lord will provide. Because that's, that, that's the thing that impresses Abraham about this thing. This is the thing that strikes... And he's probably going back and thinking about those things, he, that, that comment he made to Isaac as they were walking up the mountain. And he's going, boy, God really does do that. God really does provide. And then Moses, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts this little parenthetical statement in here. He says, as it is said today, in the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And as we mentioned right at the close last week, Moses is writing this when? In the desert, in the wilderness, okay? He's writing the book of Genesis in the desert, in the wilderness, sometime presumably between Mount Sinai and, and uh, 40 years later uh, when, they, uh, when the children of Israel ultimately enter into Israel. 
uh, into the promised land. Okay, so sometime in that time frame, he's writing the Pentateuch, the five books. Okay, so Genesis is probably written early on in that process. But he's but when he's writing this, what he's saying is he's saying it's in other words, if, if we put ourselves in that context, we as Israelites out in the wilderness are reading the book of Genesis for the first time. And Moses is saying to us, as you say today, as you all are saying, as is your custom to say in the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. In other words, here we are some four or five hundred years after this event at Moriah. And it has become customary among the children of Israel to say in the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So, in other words, the children of Israel have developed a theology about Moriah. And their theology about Moriah is that as God has provided in the past, so now we understand that in his mount, it will be provided. And you go, what's it? Okay. well. I'm sure in the context, what they understood was whatever they need will be provided in the Mount of the Lord. Okay. Now, for many years, the Mount of the Lord was a reference to Sinai. But after Solomon built his temple in Jerusalem, Jerusalem came to be known as the Mount of the Lord. Okay. And of course, we know from our earlier studies here in this part of the chapter that Moriah is in fact one of those mountains in the Jerusalem area uh, it's it's Jerusalem okay so in other words this this theology has developed among the children of Israel in which they understand that God is somehow going to make provision for them in his mouth and so we begin to understand then that this this event has far greater significance than just a, than just the significance of what happened in the life of Abraham. And the first clue as to its greater significance actually comes in the passage itself, when it says the angel of the Lord came to him a second time then. So after he has offered the burnt offering and he's now standing there watching it being consumed or or whatever, sometime right in that immediate context. He hears from the angel of the Lord again. The Lord speaks to him. And I want you to notice what he says. He says, uh, uh, beginning in verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and you have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed because because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose, etc., etc. So the angel of the Lord comes now a second time and he, and he says to Abraham, he reiterates to Abraham this thing that he said before. Now, we need to remember what most of what he's saying here, he's already said, right? And he's not only said it once, but he said it repeatedly. Okay? So before Abraham left Haran, the skeleton of this promise has already been given to Abraham in Genesis 12. Verses one and two. Okay, so the skeleton of his promise has already been given to Abraham, and God said, 
You leave Aaron, you leave Aaron and you go where I'm going to show you and this is what I'm going to do. Then he gets into the land of promise. He gets to Shechem and God kind of says the promise again, focuses on the part of the land. So when he's at Shechem, God says, okay, look around you. All this is the land. This is the land I'm going to give to you. Wherever your foot treads, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Uh, then you get over into, uh, into chapter 13. Uh, and in chapter 13, we have the story of of the conflict between Lot and Abraham and then Lot separates. And when Lot separates, God comes to Abraham again. And God says it all to him again. And he reiterates and he, and he elaborates a little bit on the promise. I'm going to give you these descendants and they're going to be more than and 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 you're going to have, have all this land and all that sort of thing. OK, and then we get over into chapter 15 and God comes to Abraham again and he says, OK, I'm going to give you all these descendants. And Abraham, by this point, is getting OK, now, Lord, you keep saying this, but I need. How do I know this? Okay. So in chapter 15, we have the cutting of the covenant, right? So, I, so, so Abraham says to God, how do I know you're going to give me this? There's Eliezer. How about Eliezer? And God says, no, it's going to be through your own body. And then he says, and now I'm going to give you the land. And Abraham says, well, you know, how do I know you're going to give me the land? And that's when God cuts the covenant with him. Okay. That whole thing about splitting the carcasses and walking down the bloody aisle. The bloody alley. Okay, that whole story is Genesis chapter 15. Then we go a, a little bit later, we get over to chapter 17. Abraham's now 99 years old. And God comes to him again and he reiterates this promise again. He gives him this promise again. And, and he's very specific now. He's going to be, and he actually tells him the name of this son that's going to be born to him. He says, you're going to call him Isaac. Okay. And, he said, and then he institutes the sign of the covenant. Okay? So chapter 15 was the cutting of the covenant. In chapter 17, he institutes the sign of the covenant, which is what? Circumcision. Okay? So he institutes the sign of circumcision. Okay? Now, here we are 15 or so years later. And Isaac has been born and raised. And now Abraham has done this remarkable thing of not withholding his son, his only son, the one for whom the promise is given, he has not withheld him and he has offered him to God. And God, of course, has, has provided instead a substitute. And so then the angel of the Lord says to him, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing. And then he goes through this whole promise again. Now, to understand what's going on here, it would help if we turned over to the book of Hebrews. So keep your finger there in Genesis. And turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. And Hebrews chapter 6 is one of those passages that people like to throw up to show that you can lose your salvation. Okay? And I'm not going to go into all of that right now, but it's one of the passages that those who believe that we are not eternally secure like to turn to to prove that we're not eternally secure. It's interesting to me that what we're going to understand about what God is saying here in Genesis 22 is explained to us in this chapter that people always go to to explain how God can change his mind about saving you. OK, well, uh, and we're not going to go into all that, as I say, but it's just interesting that it comes in the same chapter. Uh, but in chapter six of Hebrews, in verse 13, it says, for when God made the promise to Abraham. Now, he says, when God made the promise to Abraham, I'm going, which time when God made the promise to Abraham? Right? 
he made it several times. Okay. Well, it becomes very clear in the next sentence what time he's referring to. It says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. When did he do that? Genesis 22. Yeah. Okay. That's when God swore by himself. Okay. So he says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he, that is Abraham, obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them, an oath given as a confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement and take hold of the hope set before us. Okay. And so now we begin to get some sense or some idea of the greater significance of this passage. Because God has made this promise on a, on a number of occasions to Abraham. But now he does something different. He gives the promise, but he gives the promise with an oath. And so the writer of Hebrews, as he talks about this, he says uh, uh, in verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. The question is, what are the two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God? What are the two things? Okay. Well, the two things are his word and his oath. His word and his oath. And up till now, all Abraham has had is God's word. Now, that's plenty. Because God's word is what? Unchangeable, right? God's word is unchangeable. And Abraham, that's all he's had. He's just had God's word that God has said, I'm going to do this. 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 And then God comes to him and says, I want you to burn up your son. That's an offering. And Abraham, knowing that God's word is unchangeable, that God has said that he would offer, that he would through Isaac, that his descendants would come, this multitude of descendants would come. Abraham, knowing that, immediately responds in obedience to God. So that in Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us that Abraham obeyed God by faith. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed God. Why did Abraham do what he did when God came to him and said, burn his son? Offer his son as a burnt offering. Why did Abraham immediately, unconditionally, and unreservedly respond? He did so because he knew that God's word was unchangeable. And that God had promised him that through Isaac his descendants would be called. And so Abraham, totally bamfoozled by how this is all going to work out, totally at a loss as to how all this is going to work out, still understands the unchangeableness of God's word. So he takes his son and he goes to Moriah and he does not withhold his son from God. 
And God comes to him at that point and says, Now, in addition to my word, you have my oath. Now, I can't swear by anyone greater than me, so I will swear by myself. So now, Abraham has two things. Two unchangeable things. The initial promise of God and the oath of God by which he swears upon himself. Now, here's the interesting thing. Why does Abraham need the oath? He's got God's word. And, and he has already made the ultimate act of obedience as evidence that he believes that word. So why the oath? What does Hebrew tell us why the oath? Okay, yeah, but who's having the dispute here? Abraham wasn't disputing. Abraham believed God. Pardon? Heirs. Who? What heirs? Us. See what he says? He says in verse 17, in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. God interposed here an oath in addition to his word, not for Abraham's sake, who has already proven that he believes God's word, but he's given that oath for you and I. So that we might know by two unchangeable things by which it is impossible for God to lie, His word and His oath, that you and I might have encouragement to cling to the hope that is implied in what in the promise that God gave to Abraham. This is eternal security, folks. This is eternal security from Hebrews chapter 6, I want you to know. Okay? From the passage everybody goes to to say, or a lot of people go to to say, you're not eternally secure. I'm going to go to Hebrews Hebrews chapter 6 to say, I beg to differ with you. God has given me two two evidences of His unchangeable purpose. One is His Word, and the second is His oath. God has purposed to save us. God has purposed to bless us through the seed of Abraham. And I am His heir. And that will never change. Now, the significance of Hebrews chapter 6 and, and his, his statement about unchangeableness, you, you understand the significance of that now? Because that's the whole question for Abraham. Does God change? God had made all these promises to him earlier, and then God says, okay, now I want you to offer your son. And the question that comes in the flesh at that moment is what? God's changed his purpose. He's changed his mind. And God wants us to know that He does not change His mind. And He wants us to be assured that He does not change His mind. And so, all these promises that God has given to Abraham, that He had earlier given to Abraham, and He had given unconditionally to Abraham, 
and that he repeated over and over again, as we see in chapter after chapter in the story of Genesis. He repeats it over and over again. He wants us to know that even though it looked like there for a moment in the life of Abraham that God had changed his mind, God does not change his mind. And if God has said something, it's true. And it's going to happen. And God has been gracious enough not only to give us his word, but as just a super Benny, as icing on the cake, to give us his oath also. And to swear by himself. In order that you and I might know that his purpose for you and his purpose for me will never change. And as we read through the story in Genesis, we may not see some of the things that that really are loaded into that passage, but quite clearly the writer of Hebrews is making it clear this whole issue of our salvation is loaded into that passage. And you remember Zechariah, uh, after, uh, after he got his voice back, after John the Baptist was born, in, in Luke chapter 1, I think it's verse 72 or 73, he says that this passage is a prophecy that the Messiah was going to come and was going to free Israel from all its captives, all its enemies. Okay? So, so Zechariah sees in this passage the prophecy of the Messiah. And the writer of Hebrews sees in this passage the prophecy of our salvation. And so this thing that's happened in the life of Abraham, lo, these many 4,000 years ago, has bearing for you and I today. Okay. Well, now there's another thing that's loaded into this passage as well. And this is the third way we have to understand this passage. And this comes clear to us in Hebrews chapter 11. When it says that Abraham received Isaac back as a what? Type. Yeah, he received him back as a type. Okay. Now, what we understand about God as we read through the Bible is we discover that God is very understanding of you and I as individuals, as human beings. And he understands how our minds work. And he understands that sometimes it's very difficult for us to understand and comprehend intangible things, things we can't see. It's very hard for us to understand those things. So God has graciously provided throughout the scriptures and throughout redemptive history, God has graciously provided tangible illustrations of the intangibles, right? And so we have some very specific things that God specifically designed for us to do to illustrate, the, to do tangibly, to illustrate the intangibles, okay? So in the wilderness, he had the children of Israel construct the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is, in a sense, a picture of heaven. It's a picture of God and his presence and, and the throne of heaven, okay? It's a way that the children of Israel could understand God on his throne. And and, uh, and 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 he had him, and then he had them develop this whole uh, Levitical sacrificial system of offering and sacrifices and stuff. And all of that was designed to help the children of Israel understand the intangible things about forgiveness and about how forgiveness is secured. So he gives them this very tangible thing that they could do. And and it doesn't stop in the Old Testament. We get to the New Testament, and God does the same thing. And he gives to us tangible things that we can do. Four of our members just got up and went into the other room to witness a what? A baptism. 
Okay, we know that baptism doesn't do anything in and of itself, but it is a tangible expression of an intangible reality. It helps us understand what God is doing. Communion or the breaking of bread is the same kind of thing. God has given us something tangible to do that helps us understand intangible things. Well, he has not only done that with specific things like the ordinances and things like that, or the law in the Old Testament or the tabernacle or the Ark of the Covenant, but he has also done it with history. He has allowed certain things to happen or certain things have happened in history and those events serve to illustrate intangible things. They are, they are tangible things that happen in history that serve the purpose of illustrating intangible things. So, for example, clear back in the Garden of Eden, after the fall, God comes and he, uh, Adam and Eve have clothed themselves with with fig leaves and God comes and he slays an animal and he clothes them with a garment. Okay? It's just a physical, tangible event that happened in history, right? But it's loaded with significance, isn't it? Because it's not just something that God did with Adam and Eve, but it serves as a type. It serves as a picture. And the type there is, are, the, are the animal skins and the anti-type is the righteousness of Christ. Okay? The anti-type to which the type points is the, is the righteousness of Christ. We have, we have Noah and the ark. Okay? It's a real event that happened in history. But it's an illustration. It's a type of something intangible. So we, to understand the intangible, we go back and we look at the story of Noah and the ark and it helps us understand the intangible. Okay? And the scripture is loaded with types and antitypes like that. The story of Abraham and the offering of Isaac is one of those types. It's a picture. Actually, if you'll notice, it's really two sets of types. Okay? I want you to notice it's really two sets of types. Uh, in, in, uh, in set one, Abraham is the type and God is the anti-type. And Isaac is the type and Jesus is the antitype. So that's set one. In set one, as we've talked through the last couple of weeks, we talked about how we see in Abraham the love of the father. Right. So there's a sense in which this in this story in which Abraham represents God. Abraham is the type. God is the antitype. And in that set where Abraham is the type and God is the antitype, Isaac is the type and Jesus is the anti-type, right? Because it's Abraham, the father, offering his only begotten son, not withholding his only begotten son. And the anti-type of that is God, the father, offering his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus. Okay. And so we can see in Isaac some things about Christ. So when we see Isaac's willing submission to his father, we see that as, an, as the type of Christ's willing submission to his father to be the sacrifice, to be the ram. Okay? So that's the first set. The second set has Isaac as the type and we are the anti-type. And the ram is the type and Jesus is the anti-type. Right? Okay? So in this second uh, set of types, if you will, we see 
that Isaac represents you and I. And we need something to be offered in our place. We need God to provide a ram. And that ram was provided for Isaac. And that ram is provided for you and I. So as we go back and we look at this story and we contemplate this story then, we see not only the profound lessons that we've been learning over the last couple of weeks just about the walk of faith and obeying God and, and friendship with God and all those things we've been learning. We've learned those. Not only in this story do we see the profound eternal significance of what happened there that had a lasting eternal bearing on your and your and my life. Okay. But we also see that this is a beautiful illustration to us of what God has done for us, of his great magnanimous love who would not withhold his only son, his only begotten son, but offered him up for us all. And we see in this a beautiful illustration how God has provided for you and I a ram to be offered in my place because I deserved to lay on that altar. And I deserve to have the knife of the Father pierce my throat and the flames of the Father's wrath consume me. But God provided a ram. Okay? Next week we'll go on.